Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. But today we are continuing in a series that we have been doing over the last uh, several weeks called Disciple, which is about what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. And what we've been saying is the basic idea of being a disciple of Jesus is ordering your life around three values or goals, and it's these, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Excuse me. Wow. Uh, Doing what Jesus did. That's how we can order our lives as followers of Jesus. Now, we've gone over those and kind of talked about those in depth over the last several weeks, so if you missed that, you can go back and listen to our podcast or look at our YouTube channel. It's all there for you to go back and, and, and uh, recap. But what we've been doing now as we're now in the second half of this series is we're looking at the practices of Jesus because that's what a disciple does. They look at what their master is doing. They don't just learn their teaching. They try to emulate the lifestyle and the practices and the habits of their master, and it's the same for us. And this is, if you read through the Gospels, what you'll see is that Jesus had certain habits, certain practices that were a part of his everyday routine. Things like prayer and fasting and silence and solitude and and, uh, reading the scriptures and public worship. And he practiced Sabbath. He practiced giving to the poor. And he practiced living simply. All of these things are just normal habits and routines that were a part of Jesus's life. We call those spiritual disciplines, but really, you know, that word can be kind of off-putting. Really, these are just habits or practices that Jesus incorporated. And it's so important for us to look at these because, well, I'll say it this way. If If we want the life that Jesus offers, we must embrace the way that Jesus lived. You know, so many of us, we want the benefits of being a Christian. You know, we want the joy that Jesus promised. We want the life that Jesus promised. We want the peace that Jesus promised. We want the transformation that Jesus promised. But the challenge is that those things often only come by embracing the way that Jesus lived. I think a lot of us, we want a download of joy. We want a download of peace. We want a download of transformation, and and then everything will be great. And, And you know what? Hear me. God does do those things at times. God, there are times when God sovereignly intervenes in our lives and, and totally transforms us in an instant. But those things won't really last. They won't really stick unless we are willing to alter our lives, to, to practice the way that Jesus lived, to, to embrace the, the lifestyle of Jesus. So, for example, if you want closeness and intimacy with God, you're going to have to embrace a lifestyle of prayer. Because that's what Jesus did. Lauren talked about that last week. Jesus was a man of prayer. And if Jesus needed to pray, then then we also need to pray. And if we we aren't willing to shift our lifestyle and practice that practice, we're going to miss out on the intimacy with God, the the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit that that God intends for us. Or or maybe we're wanting to experience the peace that Jesus promised. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Do not be troubled. Do not be afraid. Well, getting that peace is going to involve some choices about being connected to God, about being in His Word so that the truth is what we're living out of, the truth of His Word, rather than our circumstances. So this whole idea of living the life that Jesus offers or experiencing the blessings of Christianity, 
It, it, it can only come if we're really willing to embrace the lifestyle of Jesus. So last week, Lauren started us off by looking, as I said, at the prayer, at prayer as, as one of the foundational practices of Jesus. And today, what we're looking at is the practice of community. Community. Now, Jesus lived his life in community. And if you'll recall, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at how community plays a role in helping form us and shape us to help us look like Jesus. And there's a, a, a diagram that I've seen that I really like. It's called the diamond of Christ-likeness. And this, these are the, the, the four ways, the four tools, if you will, that God uses to transform us to look like Jesus. There's the, the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, all right? We can't, do, we can't become like Jesus without his help. Um, there's the spiritual disciplines, which is what we're talking about. There's community. And then there's the hard knocks of life. We covered this in detail a few weeks ago, so you can go back and listen to it if you want to hear more. But my point here is that all of these things are tools that God uses to transform us, to help us become like Jesus, to have his character, to have his, uh, his, his um, value system. Community, though, is the context in which discipleship to Jesus happens. Of course, there are times when we need to be on our own in before God in prayer, studying the scriptures. I mean, there's definitely disciplines and practices that require solitude. But community is the primary place where discipleship to Jesus happens. And the big lie that so many Christians believe is that somehow we can live the Christian life on our own, that we don't need others in our lives, that community is just an optional extra for the extroverted among us. We don't really need community. It is in community that God transforms us. It's his laboratory for forming us and transforming us and making us like Jesus and learning how to practice and live out the one another's, you know, love one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another. Community is the context in which all of that happens. But there's a problem with living in community, and that is that our culture, Western culture, has made idols of independence and self-sufficiency. Uh, the author, David Brooks, uh, calls our culture uh, hyper-individualistic. And I think it's worth digging into that a little bit this morning because I think it helps us understand so much of what we're seeing transpire in our culture today. So David uh, Brooks, he defines hyper-individualism this way. He says, hyper-individualism, the reigning ethos of our day, is a system of morals, feelings, ideas, and practices based on the idea that the journey through life is an individual journey, that the goals of life are individual happiness, authenticity, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency. Hyper-individualism puts the same question on everybody's lips. What can I do to make myself happy? A lot of us read that and we think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is that that is not the way of Jesus. You can't live this and follow Jesus at the same time. Remember, we talked about in the second week of the series that Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross. You got to follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and my sake will find it. And that is the opposite of what hyper-individualism looks like. 
And there are consequences to this approach, to this way of living. Um, you know, one of the results is that we have become an increasingly isolated and lonely. A, a uh, 2018 study found that 9 million Britons experience loneliness often or always. 9 million. And that was before the pandemic. I mean, I can't imagine what those numbers are like now. And in fact, in 2018, when that uh, study came out, uh, Theresa May came, came forward and she was so concerned about this that she said, we as a government, they need to do something. So she created a new government ministerial post. And there is now in the UK government, a minister of loneliness. Have you heard about this? And she at the time said, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. I think she's right. But, but loneliness, you know, does it really affect us? Is it really that big of a deal? You know, a lot of us, we think of loneliness as just kind of like an emotional state or a mental condition, but loneliness actually impacts us physically far more than we realize. Researchers have found that chronic loneliness is worse than smoking 15 packs of cigarettes a day, and that loneliness has a greater impact on our lifespan than obesity. Chronic loneliness is tied to heart disease, high blood pressure, chronic inflammation, dementia, anxiety, and depression. It has an impact on our lives. I'm talking, you know, all of us feel lonely from time to time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that chronic loneliness where, where there, you just have no social interaction. I saw another study that there's, uh, I can't remember the number, but a number of Britons have uh, 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 said that they didn't speak to a family member or a friend over a one-month period. It was like some crazy number, like 15% of Britons. Can you imagine that? Not talking to a family member or a friend for a whole month. And yet that's everyday life for people, and it's impacting us physically. But not only does hyper-individualism impact us that way, it impacts how our culture works in some surprising ways. In fact, hyper-individualism leads to tribalism. Tribalism is sort of the evil twin of community. <laughs> Where community is based on mutual love, tribalism is based on mutual hate. Community is based on who and what we're for. Tribalism is about who and what we're against. Community is about generosity and honoring and celebrating others, even those with differences from us, whereas tribalism is a zero-sum battle for scarce resources where it is kill or be killed. If God sets the lonely in families, as it says in uh, Psalm 68, 8, then individualism, hyper-individualism, pits, uh, pits people against one another in tribes. So hyper-individualism, it promises freedom, it promises happiness, it promises the life we really want, but in reality, it delivers deep unhappiness and warring factions. And I think it's really helpful as we look at what's happening in our culture today and the way we're so divided and the way we're so angry and there's so much hatred and offense in our culture, I think a lot of it could be traced back to this wholehearted embrace of hyper-individualism. So it affects our health and it affects our society, but, but it also affects us in the church. Hyper-individualism affects us as Christians because this is the water that we've been swimming in. This has become really pronounced in the last 60 years. So for a lot of us, this is all we've ever known. And we think, well, this is how life is supposed to be. And what happens is we become followers of Jesus and we just layer that on top of this mindset and it creates 
all kinds of problems. Like I mentioned earlier, we think we can do the Christian life alone. We think the Christian life is all about us being happy and that community is just an optional, extra, uh, optional add-on for people. And as a result, we get isolated, we get distant from other people, and then we get taken out. I, I love uh, nature documentaries. I love, uh, my family will tell you, I, that's like one of my favorite things to do as a family. I'm always watching, the BBC produces some amazing ones. I'm always like, Lauren, you've got to see this latest thing, this crazy thing that happens. Um, but one of the documentaries, I, I'm sure you've seen similar ones, is, uh, is, shows wolves that are hunting bison in northern Canada. And what's happening is they don't go after the, the strong, healthy bison. They don't go after all the bison together. Wolves are really smart. They know that they can't take down a strong, healthy bison. They can't even take down a weak, healthy bi- or weak bison by itself. They need the whole pack together. And what they do is they look for the weak bison. They look for the sick one, the wounded one, the, the young one, and they try to isolate it from the rest of the herd. And only then can the pack of wolves descend on it and take it down. Well, that is kind of what the Christian life is like. Peter, writing to uh, early Christians in the first century, he writes this. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And remember, your family of believers all over the world, he's appealing now to community, is going through the same kind of suffering you are. I think this is really important for us to understand The enemy, he wants to take you down. And the way that he does that, he's looking for someone to devour. And the people that he's looking to devour are the the weak, the wounded, the people that are isolated from their community. And he's looking to take them down. So Peter says, look, stand firm against him. And then he points people back to community. He says, remember the family of believers. They're your protection. They're the herd that we can be uh, protected by. As a pastor, I've watched for years people, when they get isolated, that what, what happens is the pattern is very predictable. People come into community, maybe we're a bit idealistic, we're a bit hopeful, something bad happens. You get offended, you get hurt, you get misunderstood, you get mistreated. And so the natural reaction in those moments is to pull back and, 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 and separate yourself from community. That's the natural thing that we want to do, but that's exactly what the enemy wants you to do because then he comes in and he takes you out. He, that offense grows, and pretty soon you start, you start being offended not just at the people of God, you start being offended at God himself, and eventually your faith just crumbles. So we have to recognize that God's intention for us is not to be isolated. As Psalm 68.8 says, God sets the lonely in families That's his desire for you. He doesn't want you to be alone. He doesn't want you to be weak and defenseless. He he wants you to be surrounded by other believers. And we can't, that's his desire for us. And I just want to say, we can't do it without the community of believers alongside us. We cannot live the Christian life without community surrounding us. And we see this modeled for us in the life of Jesus Um, He wasn't just, you know, this sage that lived up on a mountain that just periodically came down to to, uh, to, uh, dispel his wisdom to everyone. Occasionally, he talked to the—he lived his life 
in community. And we read this passage at the beginning from Matthew where Jesus selects the the 12 apostles. And I just want to read it again because there's some interesting things in here. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. And just remember, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. He had probably hundreds of disciples over the three years of his ministry that were following him around. But after a period of time, he chooses these 12 to become the apostles. These were the ones, the ones that we've heard about. You know, these are the ones that are going to take the gospel and can continue the work of Jesus after he's gone. And so he's, in other other, uh, accounts of the story, he'd spent the whole night praying, and now he's choosing the twelve. So Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is an interesting group of guys. So he, he chooses these 12 and then embarks on a three-year camping trip with them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been camping, but, but camping quickly exposes people's, um, <clears throat> people's idiosyncrasies and their quirks. You know, you find out really quick who snores a lot. You find out really quick who's a good cook and who's a bad cook. You find out really quick who's got BO. You find out really quick all those kinds of things. And these guys are living three years like that together. Can you imagine the kind of community that would have produced? But there's something interesting here. If we could go back to that last verse, there's, there's two of these men that have monikers after their name. We've got Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Now, we just read those, and we think, yeah, I know, those, these are, those are 12, uh, two of the 12 disciples, but, but there's something really interesting in the subtext that's going on here, because these guys could not have been further apart on the political spectrum than a zealot and a tax collector. I mean, if you were like a boxing, uh, if you were arranging a boxing match, this would be like the perfect setup. You could, you could call it in, in one corner. You've got Simon the zealot. Now, zealots were like the Taliban of first century Israel. They were deeply committed to Israel's independence and to pure practice of Judaism. And their way of living that out and making sure that happened was to uh, take up arms. They were deeply offended that Rome was occupying Israel. They were deeply offended by King Herod and his pagan ways. They wanted a pure nation, and the way they were going to get it was to fight for it. And so they moved into small communities in these impregnable defenses in the mountains. I've actually been to one of their villages in the mountains of northern Israel where they would, they would just be hidden from, really, from the Romans and they would periodically branch out and attack the Romans in guerrilla warfare. They were a headache for the Romans. So the zealots were just, they were hardcore guys and they were willing to take up arms. And the Taliban might be a great way of thinking about these guys. And in the other corner, we've got Matthew, the tax collector. <laughs> now, Matthew was employed by Rome, and, and, and he, he, what he did was he collected taxes on behalf of Rome, and then if he took some off the top to line his own pockets and enrich himself, then Rome didn't really mind that. He was seen as a traitor. He was hated by the community in general, but he was really hated by the zealots. Now, I can't imagine what coffee, what morning coffee must have looked like for these two. I bet Matthew was fearing for his life the first year or two of following Jesus because there's a zealot over there. He's just waiting for his chance to take me out. I know it. This would be like having 
I don't know, Nigel Farage and Jeremy Corbyn in your small group. I mean, can you imagine that kind of conversation? Like, those guys, I mean, they can't stand in the same room together without just, you know, attacking one another and just be like, guys, calm down. Let's, let's drop the Brexit thing. Let's drop the, the, the COVID response thing. Just come on. Can we just, just love one another? Be patient. I mean, it would be a battle royale. And this had to be what it was like in Jesus's small group community. So Jesus's community was, was not just all, you know, sunshine and lollipops. It was, it was, it was, these guys fought it out. They duked it out. There was a lot of intense community going on in this little group. So I think that's a beautiful thing. Jesus chose not just people who were all on the same level spiritually, not just on the same level politically. He chose people that were really diverse, and that's what he wants his church to be. You skip ahead, and you, you see what happens on Pentecost, and you've got people from all different nations suddenly drawn into the church. It's beautiful. I love it. It's undoing the curse of the Tower of Babel. You know, last week, um, last week we were driving to our men's retreat, and in our car, I noted that we had people from three different continents, three different ethnicities, four different nations represented, different educational backgrounds, and yet we were all united by one person, by Jesus. We were all united by our common experience of Jesus. It was so encouraging to just hear, oh, you've met him too, and you lived in a different continent than me, but you've met that same Jesus that I've met. That is beautiful. That's what God wants the church to be. He wants people from every ethnicity, every political persuasion, every educational background or income bracket, people that have been married, people that have been divorced, people that are single, people with kids, no kids, ex-offenders, all are welcome around Jesus. And a lot of times we think, well, you know, we've, we've got to have a church where everybody thinks the same. But, but as long as we think the same about Jesus, the rest can be worked out. So what do we mean by community? You know, I've been using that word, but I kind of want to define it a little bit because there's a lot of different expressions of community. You know, is community like uh, you, you sell everything, you move into communal living and just hold all your possessions in common? Or is community like the, the guys that you go to the pub with on Friday night? I think there's a lot of different ways of experiencing parts of community, but, but I define it this way. Community is people of common interest living in the same area. Really simply, people of common interest living in the same area. So by that definition, schools are communities. Uh, local clubs are communities. Workplaces are communities. Sports teams are communities. Heck, uh, 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 People that support sports teams are communities. So you've got the Blades, and you've got the Owls, and we've got both represented in this church. And, and by the grace of God, that's never been, you know, it's never come to blows. But, but those are communities, right? There's a, there's a bond. We, you've got a common interest. You're living in a common area. But not all communities are the same. And so the kind of community I'm talking about is what I'm calling a transforming community transforming us to become like Jesus. That's what we're after. We don't just want the community that, you know, celebrates the win of your local team. We, we want the kind of community that helps us become like Jesus, and not all communities are like that. That kind of community has to be chosen intentionally. That kind of community just doesn't happen naturally. 
We don't drift that direction. The gravitational pull is towards isolation. It's towards, uh, it might be towards some types of community, but it's not going to draw us into the kind of transforming community that helps us become like Jesus. And that's why we included it as a, as a discipline in the series, because it has to be chosen, and it has to be chosen again, and again, and again, and again. And even after you've been hurt, and even after things didn't go very well, and even after there was that awkward experience, we have to continue to come back and choose it. It's just like any other discipline. It's kind of like fasting or, or getting up early to study the scriptures. You wouldn't do that if you weren't a follower of Jesus. But choosing a transforming community takes intentionality. We've got to choose it again and again. So what is a transforming community? I want to give you four traits before we wrap up today. First of all, transforming community must be, in, must be personal. Now, this is something I wouldn't have had to say if I was giving this sermon 20 years ago. But thanks to the advent of technology, smartphones and social media and texting and emailing, we have got to this place where people think of community can be like an online community. It can be a digital community. But online community is an oxymoron. It can't really exist because what we do is we confuse Connectivity, we're more connected than ever before. There's no doubt about that. But we confuse connectivity with community. And I'm sure you've seen the studies. The more time you spend on social media thinking that you're connecting with other people, the more anxious you become and the more depressed you become. It's kind of like eating fast food. You know, it, it tastes good. It gives you that quick hit. And it, it seems to be nourishing you, but actually it's killing you. You think about like the, if you've seen the documentary Super Size Me, where the guy tries to eat McDonald's for every meal for 30 days, and he gets to the point near the end, he's had so much grease and so much salt that his body starts to shut down. And his daughter, doctor's like, hey, quit, quit, quit doing this. Come off the diet, man. That's kind of what social media is like. That's what technology, it provides kind of a, a pseudo form of community. I just want to say real community, it might start like you might meet somebody online. Maybe you're watching this church online, and that's, that's where the journey begins for you. So, so I can say that maybe, maybe community starts online, but it can't stay there. Real community cannot happen behind a screen. It has to happen in person. And another way that we might confuse this is, is people that live on the other side of the world, people that live maybe in different cities, people that, that we knew and maybe were in community with at one point but aren't anymore. For example, I have lots of friends in America that I love dearly and would do anything for, and when I'm back in the States visiting, we love to hang out. I love those guys to death, and I was in community with them at one point in my life, but I'm not in community with them anymore. The people that I'm actually in a transforming community with are sitting right here. You guys are the ones that, that I'm praying with. You guys are the ones that can call me out when I mess up. You guys are the ones that can encourage me when I'm down. You guys are the ones that, that are sharing my burdens and I'm sharing your burdens. And that's the thing about community is that, is that it, 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 we, when, when you try to do community online and, and have digital community or virtual community, it's too easy to hide the ugly places, right? It's too easy to, to post the great picture on social media, but... But that's not the reality of our lives, and that's why it has got to be in person. Secondly, transforming community must be small. <laughs> you know, as we discussed, Jesus had a small group that he spent most of his time with, especially in those last years of his life. 
And in the early church, it was the same thing. They met house to house on a regular basis. Or, you know, think about it, though. Most of the stories that we love involve a small group doing extraordinary things. So think about Lord of the Rings. You've got Frodo heading off to Mordor with eight other companions, not a big army. And of those eight companions, three of them are hobbits who seem to only be good for uh, eating, drinking, and smoking a pipe. Not all that inspiring at the outset, but obviously you know the rest of the story. Or think about the Marvel movies. They're real popular. It's all about the Avengers, right? This small group of people doing extraordinary things to save the universe, right? I mean, it's this idea that, that small groups are where battles are fought for one another. And that's the thing. Real community has to, we need that small group in order to, to, to really live out the Christian life. Because it's in that small group that we actually come to know one another. I mean, most churches, everybody kind of keeps a polite distance. You know, we, we, we don't, we, we, we're, our conversations are superficial. We don't really know what's going on in most people's lives, and they don't really know what's going on in our lives. And that kind of community might keep the peace. It might not be very messy, but it's not going to transform anybody. So I'm not saying you need to be like best friends with everybody in the church or that everyone needs to have the same access to your life. That's not possible. That's not really feasible. But somebody needs to know what's going on in your life. Somebody needs to know what battles you're facing. Somebody needs to know what's happening in your world. And you need to know what's happening in at least a few other people. You know, I I like this quote from Brother Andrew. He says this, a group is about the right size when each member can pray for every other member individually and by name. That's the kind of small community that we need. And that's so important because that's how we learn to contend for one another. That's how we, you know, I can't care for everybody in this room as the pastor. There's no way I can do it, but I can care for two or three people, three or four people that I'm spending doing life with and actually involved in their, in their life. And, and if you think about it, this is how great, you know, the great deeds that happen, the great heroic stories that we're so familiar with, they, they often happen in small groups. If you think about uh, one of my favorite books is Band of Brothers, which is the story of an American parachute infantry regiment that fought in some of the most decisive battles of World War II. And the book is extraordinary, and it tells about, you know, D-Day and, and their journey from the Battle of the Bulge and all the way to Berkish Garden and, and Hitler's compound and how they took that. And, and if you read the story, it's just extraordinary the things that some of these guys did. And when people would ask them, hey, how did you, how did you have the courage to do this? They would say, well, it wasn't that we wanted to win the war. It wasn't that we wanted medals or we wanted to be seen as heroes. The reason we dared greatly for one another was because we loved one another. We knew one another. We would do anything for our brothers in the foxhole with us. So my question to you today is, who really knows you? Who's willing to fight for you? Who's willing to sacrifice time and energy? Who's willing to pray for you? And who is in your life that you're willing to fight for? that you're willing to pray for, that you're willing to spend time and energy helping them. That's the kind of community that transforms people. It's got to be small. We've got to know each other. Thirdly, transforming community will be messy. (laughs) Yay. I mean, it certainly got messy for Jesus and his disciples. I mean, it seems like if you read through the Gospels, they're constantly arguing and bickering amongst each other. 
I think one of my favorite stories is when James and John, they sense Jesus is about to step into his kingdom. I think they thought that Jesus was going like, to be a political leader, and so they wanted like, the, the, the choice positions in his cabinet. You know? so they, they, but they, didn't, they weren't courageous enough to ask Jesus themselves. Instead, they sent their mother in to ask Jesus for a favor. So James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on your right and your left? And Jesus is like, oh, um, interesting question. And he then begins to, you know, explain, I don't think you know what you're asking. But then when the other disciples found out about it, they were livid. You what? You sent your mother in to ask Jesus? For what, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? And Jesus basically had to step in and break up a, a pretty big argument and say, guys, it is not that way in your kingdom, in, in this kingdom. In my kingdom, the last shall be first, and the leaders serve everyone else. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so in Jesus' community, if Jesus' community was messy, then certainly ours will be as well. And that is a scary thought for us. Because we don't, I mean, who wants, I mean, it can be hurtful, it can be painful, it can be difficult, but think of it this way. Community is like squeezing a sponge. You don't really know how much is in a sponge. You don't know what's in a sponge until you pick it up and you squeeze it. That pressure causes the, the fluid to, to drain out of it. You find out what's inside of it. And when, you know, when we're on our own or when we're sitting in church just kind of doing our own thing, it's easy to think, hey, I love God and I'm growing. I'm becoming more like Jesus. I, I, I'm becoming more loving and more patient. And we can think that until we have to spend time in our small group with somebody that really irritates us. And then that's the squeezing of the sponge, and out comes things like impatience, out comes things like irritability and, de- and selfishness and demanding, and, and all those things that are ugly. We don't even know are in there most of the time, but community brings it out. And the challenge with community is that you don't always get to choose who you're doing transforming community with. And the problem is that some of those people that you're doing community with, I mean, some of them might be amazing, but some of them, I guarantee you, are going to have issues. And they're going to be issues that irritate you, issues that annoy you, issues that, that just really get on your nerves every time you're around them. I've heard someone describe community as a group of porcupines gathering together on a cold night. They come together because of the, for the warmth, but they're pushed apart by their spines. It's the perfect illustration of how community works so much of the time. You know, we know we need it. We know we want relationship, and, and we know community is a good idea. We don't want to be isolated, so we come together, and then, oh, we start getting poked and provoked by other people and their issues, and you're poking and provoking them with your issues that you're probably not aware of. And I think God orchestrates community just that way in order to expose the places we have yet to be made holy. John Eldridge puts it this way. He says, Community will reveal where you have yet to become holy, right at the very moment where you are so keenly aware of how they have yet to become holy. Amen. (laughs) It's so true. That is how it works so often. You'll have somebody come and and correct you or somebody that, that, you know, just you know, they have huge blind spots and you can see it and they don't seem to see it and yet they're the one that's calling you out. Oh, it's just, it's a glorious mess that God orchestrates for us. And I think, you know, many of us, we have this idealized view of community, but the reality is it's going to be hard at times. 
It's going to be messy. It's going to hurt at times. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be misunderstood. But rather than seeing those as moments to reject community and just say, forget it, I'm done with this, I'm going to go isolate now so I don't get hurt again, you've got to embrace those moments as your chance to practice the one another's of Scripture. You know the one another's? There's 59 of them in the New Testament, like love one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens comfort one another, encourage one another, speak the truth in love to one another. Those are, I mean, how can you practice the one another's unless there's a one another in your life? And you might think, well, it's my spouse. I've got my spouse. I can do it that way. Or I, you know, and, and yeah, that's true. That's a form of community. You should definitely practice the one another's with your spouse. However, we need, the, we need to be practicing it wider than that. More than just your immediate family, we need our brothers and sisters in Christ to learn how to live the one another's. Lastly, transforming community requires commitment. See, real community, it takes time. You can't just snap your fingers and be like, ta-da, perfect community. <laughs> that doesn't happen. You know, the, the amazing community that we read about in the early church, Acts 2, 42 to 47, it, that didn't happen just because of Pentecost. That happened because for three years, these disciples were living in super intense community together. They were building a culture and a community. So when, when Jesus was gone, they could carry it on. They could keep living it out. It took time for that to be established, and it's going to take time for us as well. You know, think about it. Jesus stuck with these guys who were knuckleheads, every last one of them. They, they made all kinds of silly mistakes and silly arguments, and Jesus was constantly like, Face palm with a lot of the things they were saying, and yet he stuck with them for three years. So, if you want transforming community, it's going to require commitment. And for most of us, the word commitment just makes us uncomfortable because we like to keep our options open, you know? I'm, I'm a P on the Myers Briggs personality test. Anybody else know about that test? Anybody, any other P's in here? Nobody else knows about that? Okay, well, let me. Oh, one mix there. All right. The Myers-Briggs test, what it does is one of the, the, the factors it measures is how scheduled you are. And if you're a P, you like to uh, keep your options open. You don't like to be very scheduled. And that is so me. I love to, I, I really don't like scheduling things and putting things on my diary because I, I, you never know when something else might come up that's better. And when it comes to transforming community, I promise you something will come up that's better. Or that seems better at the time because you'll be like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do that. That's going to be, oh, and it, oh but this looks really good. Go to a film. That sounds nice. Or, or go out and do this. Or I need to study or whatever. We come up with all kinds of excuses. But there's got to be at some level a commitment to the community that's greater than yourself. So let me be real. I mean, transforming community, it will cost you. You're going to have to trade some of your independence and some of your freedom in order to experience the blessings of community. You're going to have to surrender your time, your preferences, your way of doing things. But remember, all that freedom and hyper-individualism that we so idolize in our culture, where has it gotten us? It's made us anxious. It's made us depressed. It's made us unhappy. It's made us angry, and we're warring against one another. I actually think the reward of community far outweighs the reward of just being independent. So those are four traits of what transforming communities look like, what, what it looks like. And if you're a bit intimidated by that, I understand. 
that is not the gravitational pull of our culture. But I want to be upfront about what it's going to cost and, and the challenge of it because it's not easy. But like I said, I don't want us to dismiss it either because I don't want you to forget what the blessings of community are. I mean, not only is it a divine setup to help you become more like Jesus, to teach you how to love, to learn how to practice these one another's, but it's also vital for us if we're going to make it as followers of Jesus in these days. We cannot do it alone. And this whole sermon is just a big exhortation, hopefully, to persuade you to realize, hey, my, my need for community are greater than my excuses to not be in community. And I need to commit to this because it's in community that we get encouraged. It's in community that we get comforted. It's in community that not only do maybe our blind spots get called out, but also our, our strengths get called out that we may not even recognize about ourselves. The community of the body of Christ, when it's done well, it is the most beautiful thing on earth. And I have been far more blessed in my many years in the church than I have, uh, than, than I have hurt or damaged by things in the church. And, and look, there's been some painful things that have happened over the years, but the benefits far outweigh the difficulties and the challenges. So I'm pleading with you today to step out of isolation and hyper-individualism and ask God to help you uproot that mindset and step into community. So what's a, uh, just let me close here, just some practical steps. What do you need to do to actually embrace this? I just want to leave you with one question. It's this. What is one step you can take towards community this week? All of us are in different places. You know, you might be watching online this morning, and the whole idea of coming to a church service is absolutely terrifying to you. Well, maybe your step towards community might be coming to a church service. That's a big step for people. This is really the front door of community, just coming to the building, stepping into to an environment that you may not be familiar with, that you may have had you know, bad experience in other churches or that kind of thing. That's a big step. We've had people come to church on Sunday mornings and sit outside in their car, be unable to come in three weeks in a row before they finally worked up the courage to step out of the car, step over the threshold, and come in. But they were glad that they did. So maybe that's the step you need to take. Or maybe you're really comfortable sitting here in church. But the idea of going to a life group, which is how we do small group communities here, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> but maybe that's the step God is asking you to take. Stepping into a small group community where you can be known and you can know others. Or maybe you're already in a life group. And maybe what you're needing is actually to go a little bit deeper. Life groups are amazing and they're, they're really, really helpful. But, but there are some limitations because you're usually in a life groups are usually mixed group environments. And so sometimes I think it's really helpful to, to start a discipleship group with, with people of the same gender. Get two or three other people and just commit to meet together on a regular basis. Ask each other, how are you doing in your walk with God? It won't take long to go deep. And when those are done well, those are probably the greatest catalysts to growth and becoming like Jesus that I can recommend. And you don't, you don't need to be a life group leader to do that. Just take the initiative. And that's what I really want to encourage you to do. So many of us, we sit back and we wait for people to come to us. We wait for community to come to us. We think, well, if they come and introduce themselves, then I'll join the community. If they come and reach out to me, then I'll join. No, don't, that, that, it doesn't work that way. You have to take the initiative. Reach out to someone. Ask somebody. Ask God, what is the next step you need to take? 
And I also need to say for those who are maybe at home watching and you, you're stuck there because of COVID or because of health reasons, you know, maybe, maybe all you have right now is a screen. But I want to ask you to ask God, what, what is it that you can do to step more towards someone in your life this week? So community is the context in which discipleship to Jesus happens. It's the laboratory, the holy laboratory, where we learn how to love one another. And I'm pleading with you, please don't be isolated. Embrace the community, as imperfect as it is, that God has placed you with. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to choose to step into community because we know it's not natural. We know it's not comfortable. We know it's not easy. And Lord, even though we know the perils of being isolated so often, it's just far easier for us to hold back and to make excuses and to stay isolated. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be honest where we're just making excuses. Confront us in those places. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage that we need to step back out into community. Lord, for those who have been hurt by the church in the past, Lord, I ask, God, that you would meet them in those places, that you would heal them, that you would restore them. Lord, that you give them the courage to forgive those who have hurt them in the past and not, and not project that, that, that mistreatment onto the whole church. I pray instead, Lord, they would choose to step out even where it's been painful before. Lord, help us not to settle for shallow, distant acquaintances, but help us to be a people who know one another, who fight for one another, who encourage one another, and who learn to love one another. God, I pray that we be a people who love well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.